Bibles with you. Can you open them up to Genesis chapter 3? Genesis chapter 3 is our text this morning. And if you've been coming throughout this series, you'll know that it's entitled The Lord of the Rings. It's a series on marriage. But it's a series that goes beyond marriage to really all relationships. And none more important than the relationship that God has with his, Jesus has with his church. And what we're learning is that marriage reflects that relationship. It was meant to reflect that relationship. But we started out talking about the fellowship of the ring. Dominic, are you coming out? Yes. No, that's okay. You can stay in there. It's kind of fun. I always like watching him try to get out of that thing. It's so tight back there. Yeah, you're awesome. We start out the fellowship of the ring. What was marriage like when it was perfect, when before sin had ever even come into the picture? And then we moved, and that's where we are right now, into the two towers. What does marriage now look like, now that sin has entered the picture, and husbands and wives often become two towers, battling, defending against one another, hiding, protecting against one another? We're going to move and to the third segment, and that is the return of the king. How does Jesus redeem marriages that have been corrupted by sin? How can he do that? Well, we're going to look at that in the next few weeks. But I want to start out this morning, and I want to give you uh, an incident that happened in, in the life of Winston Churchill. I like Winston Churchill, mainly because of the way that he has a snappy comeback for anything. We had a lady, he had a lady come up at a, at a parliamentary gathering and said, Winston, if you were my husband, I would poison your tea. And Churchill said, woman, if you were my, if I were your husband, I'd drink it. <laughs> now, I... Barry, you're not even smiling. Come on, loosen up. Thank you. That was funny. Now, that lets you just see a little bit of my heart. I, I'm, I'm a sinful man. I like that kind of wit. But that's the problem in my marriage is that I like that kind of wit. And too often I give... The, oh, there she is. Hey, honey. Just, just telling everybody how much I love you. So last week... <laughs> last week... We saw the fall into sin and what that's done to the way that we image God. We ferreted out, teased out from Scripture three ways last week that sin has corrupted that image of God. Now, friends, listen, how many of you have been to a carnival and you've been in front of those mirrors that are meant to distort your image and sometimes you look like you're a foot and a half tall, other times you look like you're you know, five feet wide. That's what the mirrors are supposed to do. You know, when Adam looked at Eve before sin came in, you know what he saw? God, you are beautiful. Because she reflected him. She pointed to God. When Eve would look at Adam, she would say, God, you love me that much? Because Adam reflected God. But now sin has come in, and now it's a caricature, now it's a convoluted, distorted, fractured image that they give to God. But friends, listen, if you have a baby, 
That baby is still made in the image of God. Every one of us are still in the image of God, yet sin, to whatever degree it's done, it's distorted that image. And unfortunately, a lot of us look a lot like those carnival mirrors. And so we saw three ways last week. The first one was a distortion in the roles, their marriage roles. We image God in our marriage roles. We image God in the way that we exercise dominion over creation and the way that we allow God and submit to his dominion over us. That's how we image God. And thirdly, last week we saw that we image God in communication, the way that we speak to one another. But there's another way that Genesis makes clear that we image God, and it too has been severely fractured by sin. It's the way that we image God in peace. Did you know that in the Trinity, the triune God, the Father loves the Son, the Son loves the Spirit, and they exist in unbroken peace and harmony with one another. They've always existed that way. And husbands and wives, friends, marriage was meant to image that kind of harmony, that kind of peace that, that is already evident between God, the triune God. See, they were created, Adam and Eve, to enjoy peace with God and with each other. God desired that they would have unbroken intimacy. He wanted them to have unhindered harmony but they disobeyed God, peace was broken, their lives were shattered, and then after they sinned, all of a sudden we come upon the scene in Genesis 3. Now I want you to picture this. They had already grabbed the largest leaves they could find and sewed them together in crude clothing. They're already hiding from one another when all of a sudden, as was God's custom, apparently, in the cool of the day, God comes to spend time with his children. And he's walking through the garden and they can hear him approaching and they ran away. And they hid behind trees. And God asks them four questions. Now I want to give you two observations why God does this. First of all, you agree with me, right? God's omniscient. God knows everything. God never asks a question to gain information he doesn't have. So whenever God asks a question, and he does this all throughout the Bible, then the purpose is not like we ask questions to get information for ourselves. God's not trying to gain information. What God is doing is the same thing you will learn to do if you ever want to become a gifted counselor. You know what counselors do? You can measure the skill of a counselor by their ability to discerningly ask the right questions. Because when a counselor asks a question, when I ask somebody questions in counseling, yes, I am because I'm not God trying to find information and grow in my understanding. But you know what I'm really doing? is I want what's invisible to them to become, invis become visible. And this is why God asks questions. He's asking questions of Adam and Eve so that they can see what God sees, but they're blind to. 
So this week, what I did was I said, you know, I don't think in all the dozens of times that I've taught through Genesis 3, I don't think I've ever actually stopped and tried to answer the question, God, why these questions? Because if you can understand why God's asking the question, you'll understand what God wants us to see. And that's what I did. And I want to present to you what God drew out from our first parents, what we all need to see about ourselves, and which has direct impact on every single relationship you will ever have, none more so than your marriages. And here's what I found. Number one, sin breaks peace in relationships, and listen, it brings fear. It brings fear. Now here's the first question. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? Friends, the most common attempt that humans utilize to get rid of fear is to hide. It's what we do. And they were no exceptions. They were hiding from the presence of the Lord. So God does something that I want you to see. He calls out to who? Adam, the man. Now you remember, I told you in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, that God created man, and then it explains men and women, he created them. That word in the Hebrew for man encompasses both genders, but that's not the case here. When the, t when the text says that God called out to the man, what the text saying is that God called out to Adam. In fact, friends, listen to me, listen. The first three of the four questions are God asking of Adam. You ever notice that? Adam's the head. Adam's accountable for his relationship and his marriage. Men, listen, you and I have an accountability before God that is distinct and greater in the context of marriage than your, our wives do. Doesn't mean they have no accounting but it means God will be calling us out and saying, where are we? And what God was after is not a geographical awareness. Adam already knew where he was. God already knew where Adam and Eve were. They were hiding behind trees in the garden, like little kids. God was calling out, Adam, do you know where you are relationally? Do you know where you are spiritually, Adam? Look where your disobedience has you. It was a question, friends, that was meant to bring Adam to the edge of brokenness and despair. Now, husbands and wives, let me ask you, if I could, where are you right now in your marriages? Brave enough to really answer that honestly? In fact, let me, answer, let me ask it this way because now I'm going to get more precise. Are you satisfied in your marriages? Okay, now I'm going to really ask you the question. Is God 
satisfied with your marriage. And if your marriage is in tatters today, and listen, I don't mean right now as in this encapsulation of time on Sunday. I mean in this phase of your marriage, if it's in tatters, if it's broken, if it's not satisfying to God, friends, listen, I can promise you that it's ultimately because of sin and the destroying, disrupting force of pride and selfishness. In fact, when you counsel marriages, it doesn't take very long to drill deep into sin. And trees aren't the only thing that we've learned to hide behind. Careers and hobbies and anger and false intimacy and materialism, big homes, they all work, it seems, for a while, but it never lasts. Because God's voice always powerfully draws his children out of hiding and forces them to see, where are you now? You know, God's voice is powerful, and it does two primary powerful things. Number one, it reveals, whether it's the word of God or whether it's the voice of God, it reveals the absolute holiness of God. Friends, listen, if you study this in faith, you can't come away from this without seeing God's perfection of beauty and uncorruptible, uh, corrupted by sin that he is. That's his character. He's holy, he's perfect, and the word of God is a mirror to this, is a constant reminder of God's perfection. But you know what else happens when we're in this? It reveals to us our absolute need for God's grace and mercy. Because we've all sinned, and we all are absolutely helpless to cover it up or take it away. And so God says to Adam, Adam, do you know where you are? Because you're no longer in a place of freedom. You're no longer in a place of my favor and my grace. Adam, you're naked and you're ashamed. And you're hiding. You're hiding from your wife and you're hiding from me. In fact, Adam, get the irony of this. You're hiding behind the very thing I told you to dominate and to rule creation. And Adam responded with where he was. You know, when God asks you a question, you've got to answer. Everybody has to answer, and Adam answers, verse 10. And he said, God, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid. Why? Because I was naked, and what did he do? And I hid myself. Friends, the presence of God will always create either peace or fear, comfort or terror. There are no other options. And for the first time in their lives, Adam and Eve experienced stark, raving terror when they were around God. And Adam says to God, I was afraid of you because I was naked. But sin does something else. And it breaks peace, number two, in relationships and brings not just fear, but listen, shame. And Adam asks, or God asks Adam the second question. And here's what he asked him. Adam, 
Who told you that you were naked? Now, friends, I find this question to be extremely interesting. Because verse 7 says, Then the eyes of both were open, and they knew they were naked. You see, they knew they were naked. Nobody told them they were naked. They realized it experientially, and God knows this. And friends, that's exactly his point. It's why the, the question seems to be so strange until you see the redemptive purpose behind it. You see, after the text says they knew that they were naked, it goes on to say they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. They clothed themselves, so friends, they weren't naked anymore. So why does Adam tell God, I was afraid of you because I was naked when he's wearing clothes? Friends, this is why God asked them that question. In other words, Adam, you're wearing clothes, so why do you still feel naked? Who told you that you're naked? Have you ever thought of that before? This is incredibly deep, and I'm going to tell you why. Why did Adam and Eve clothe themselves? I mean, were their bodies suddenly ugly? That didn't happen because of sin. And even if it, listen, what makes us feel ugly in our bodies is this subliminal standard that the world indoctrinates us with. They didn't have a standard. There was no cultural magazines that gave the picture of the perfect beauty. They had nothing to compare themselves to, yet they covered themselves up with clothing. Why? Do you remember from two weeks ago that I offered an explanation for what it meant to be naked and were not ashamed? It meant, friends, listen, this is what that means. It means that they were without a failure that leads to disgrace. To be naked and unashamed means there's no failure in my life that can lead toward disgrace, which is shame. That's what that meant. But now they had failure in their lives and it extended to the very core of their beings because sin makes us unable to live in grace. It makes us unable to live in favor and peace of God. It makes us unable to give it to other people. Friends, why do you think it's so hard to love your spouse better than you love people you hardly know? We treat people that we don't know very well better than we treat our closest people. If God is, if you're not receiving grace from God, you cannot give it to other people. It's the law of grace. And sin makes it unable to enjoy grace because it does this. You ready? Sin creates shame. And shame always flips the circuit breaker on grace and cancels it out. Always. You see, shame is the personal, profound sense that I am inadequate. But even more than that, shame is the debilitating sense, here it is, that everybody else, if they get too close and they see me for who I really am, they're going to be utterly horrified at my defects. That's what shame is. 
That's why there's eating disorders. That's why people cut. It's why perfectionism rages in Christians. That's why people are pathologically control addicts. Because each of these are extreme ways to cope with a pervasive, unshakable sense of shame. And more accepted yet still deadly are those who can't open up and talk about their feelings, those who are critical and their, pet, and their, uh, their speech patterns are always condemning, those who are chronically angry, those are all common but deadly forms of shame. And when Adam and Eve sinned, friends, they lost the awareness of peace between them and God. Friends, here it is, a gap appeared between what they were and what they ought to be. Now, I think I've just given you the best definition of shame you could possibly hear. You want to know what shame is? Shame is the gap between what I know I ought to be and what I know I really am. And there's no way to bridge the gap. So we do what is the most common mechanism to get rid of shame. We conceal it. Adam and Eve had nothing because there is nothing in this world that could bridge the gap between what we are and what we ought to be. Money can't do it. Big houses can't do it. Even a thousand Facebook friends cannot do it. And certainly fig leaves can't do it either. Because nakedness is being transparent and it's now dangerous. Adam and Eve are now seeing that being naked with each other is dangerous because what if they see my defects and, and utterly are reviled? And so they try to conceal what really happened. Friends, this is the first case of hypocrisy. They try to put masks on and hide what they really were. Because they were no longer innocents. They were rebels against God. And they tried to conceal the gap between what they were and what they ought to be by clothing themselves. But the fig leaves can't cover stains on your soul. So what does God do? God makes clothes for them. And in doing so, friends, he makes clothing redemptive in two ways. Now, what I want you to do right now is if you're next to somebody that is comfortable with you, I want you to grab hold of an article of their clothing. If you're not near somebody that's comfortable with you, just grab your own sleeve, hold on to it, because I want you, every time you get dressed in the morning, or every time you take your clothes off in the evening and go to bed, or every time you go to a store to buy clothing, I want it to point to the glory of God. Let me give you two ways of clothing. Hey, get your hand back on your mom's pants. Two ways the clothing is now a redemptive tool for our honor and growth in Christ. Number one, clothing reminds us that we are not what we ought to be. That's why we wear them. When we go to that store, friends, listen, this is so awesome. When we go to the store, when we dress, we're not trying to conceal. That's not really what God wants clothing to do, to try to conceal our defects, but friends, to confess them. 
It's not about concealing. God wants clothing to get us to stop trying to conceal it. I'm not talking about physical defects. I'm talking about the stain on your soul. Clothing needs to confess, I am not what I ought to be. That's why God gave clothing to Adam and Eve. But secondly, clothes are meant to be a testimony. Friends, this is encouraging that God makes us what we ought to be. We got to confess we are not what we ought to be, but God can make us what we should be. Their clothing, Adam and Eve, their self-righteous efforts to conceal their shame was inadequate. And God rejects those clothes. He throws them out. And then presumably he kills animals to get their pelts to make clothing for Adam and Eve. Why? Because there is no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood. Life must be taken for life to be given. And it points to the day, friends, clothing points to the day where God would solve Adam and Eve's problem of stains on their soul through Christ permanently. Because the blood of the Son cleanses the stains in our souls and his resurrection secures for us brand new clothes of righteousness. The friends reflect the radiance of God's glory. So Adam, who told you that you were naked? Is what God asks. Friends, did you ever realize that's the only one of the four questions that God did not require an answer There is no answer. Nobody has to tell us that we're filled with shame. It's part of what it means to be born into sin. And there's no answer found in this world that can bridge the gap between what we are and what we ought to be but Jesus Christ himself. But there's another way that sin breaks peace in relationships, and this time it brings not just fear, not just shame, now it brings guilt. You know, Gary Smalley defines harmony in marriage as the absence of unsettled offenses between a husband and a wife. Offenses are sins, and they disrupt peace in marriage and in our relationship with God. So here comes the third question. And again, men, bear up under the word of God. Man up because it's speaking to us. And God asks, have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? He's still addressing Adam. Because Adam's still the headship of the marriage. And God asks him what we would think is an absolutely silly question. Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? Obviously, they did. And God knows this, so this is not a rhetorical question. It's a redemptive question that's meant to pull out of Adam and Eve what they desperately needed to see. But the intent of the question, friends, you've got to get this, the intent of God, God's motivation, his intent for asking this question is not on the eating of the forbidden fruit, but here it is. It's on whether or not Adam would confess his sin and guilt. 
Have you eaten from the tree, Adam? Will you take personal responsibility for your actions or will you try and evade? See, this was a test for Adam. And it's shortly going to be the same one that he gives to Eve. Adam, will you confess your sin? Will you be truthful? Not partly. We're all good at just giving a shade of the truth to make ourselves look better. But Adam, will you give the full truth and give it now? Because friends, the most common attempt to get rid of guilt is by, is by denying it and shifting the blame. That's what we do. You see, Adam, so full of guilt, has now been given an invitation by God to confess it. And here's what he says in verse 12 to answer God's question. The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Now, did you notice what Adam did here? There's a couple things that most of us miss when we read this. First of all, his admission that he ate the fruit, where was that placed, at the beginning or at the end? You ever notice that? Because that's how we minimize guilt. It's the way that we begin to shift the blame away from, from ourselves. God, he says, it was the woman's fault because you, she gave it to me. Did you ever notice that he doesn't call her wife? But yet that's how she's named before this. Now she's just the woman because wife would have been too intimate a term because he's about to throw her under the bus. Now, come on, don't you know? Haven't you ever realized that you usually have a name for your family members when you're in love with them? But you have a whole nother name that you call them when you're angry with them. I never call my wife honey when I'm in a conflict with her. It's now Denise. Let's be proper about it. He says, the woman. But not only, here's the second thing that people often miss, not only did Adam blame the woman, but infinitely worse, he blamed God. The woman you put here with me. God, don't you see? It's your fault. You and the woman. And yes, I did eat the fruit. We're all good at this. Friends, listen, look at me. This is how we win in conflict. We're all experts at warfare and relationships. It's part of the gift of sin. And it's on full display here. And as Martin Luther said, Adam is heaping sin upon sin upon sin. And now we get to see God move in a similar way to Eve. Can you imagine? I mean, Eve has got to be thinking by the third question to Adam, Ooh, I'm going to get out of this. This is great, God. Keep talking to Adam. And all of a sudden, God's holy eyes begin to shift towards her. Can you imagine the terror she must have felt? And God says his fourth question. He says to the woman, what is this that you have done? He holds her personally accountable. Not what is this that your husband has done. What is this that you have done, ladies? You will have an accounting for your wifelihood. 
And as he did with Adam, but now more strongly, God gives Eve an opportunity to confess what he already obviously knows, and she too minimizes and shifts the blame, but she does it really creatively. Notice when she admitted she ate. First or last. So you first got to minimize, and then she blamed the serpent. Now friends, listen, who created the serpent? God created the serpent. God, this is your fault. If you wouldn't have created that snake, I wouldn't have ate. I wouldn't have eaten it. Now, friends, what God is doing is showing to them their guilt because until we recognize how great our guilt is before God, listen, we will not humble ourselves and we're beyond redemption. Ask the dead souls of Genesis chapter 6 if it's possible to go beyond redemption. Years ago, I had a couple in my office and they were struggling mightily. And I started to ask questions and I started to bring out from their heart what they needed to see, what was so obvious to me. And while I was doing that, she's, her eyes began to well up with tears that began to spill over her cheeks. And she's crying silently, but he finally takes notice and he reaches over between them where I had a box of tissues placed and he pulls a tissue out of that box then flings it at her. He said, go ahead and cry all you want. You're not going to manipulate me with your tears. I said to him, get out of my office. No, I'm not leaving. Then we're done. And if you want to come back, ma'am, I'll counsel you, but your husband's heart is beyond help. And a year and a half later, they divorced. Friends, it's possible to harden your heart towards your spouse to where it's beyond saving your marriage, which is why Jesus said Moses gave certificates of divorce. Any divorce includes the hardness of your heart. And we've got to learn to discern between what are accidents in our marriages and what are offenses, between mistakes and sins. And the right, appropriate way to go to your spouse when you do something unintentionally that creates pain for her or for him is to simply say sorry. And that ought to be enough. And it's to your glory to overlook it, the Bible says. But friends, when we sin against each other, when we intentionally, from the fleshy, fleshly nature of sin in our hearts, when we sin against each other, friends, saying sorry is never, ever enough. Yet it's often what we do because sorry provides a band-aid for a potentially life-threatening marital issue. One of the things that we do, we've done this for a long time in our family. Now what we do about three times a week is we get everybody on our bed before bedtime. And one of the first things that we do as a family is we go, you know what, we sin against each other all the time. And if there's anything that's happened between us that has broken peace and harmony in our relationships, let's right now before we pray confess those to one another and ask for forgiveness. So my kids and my wife and, and I have learned 
that it's not okay when we sin to say, hey, I'm sorry for that, because there's no redemptive power in that. It's, will you forgive me? Because now I've got to be humble. Now I've got to confess what caused Christ's blood to be shed. You see, if I accidentally come up to you carrying a cup of coffee and I trip and it spills over you, friends, I don't need to ask for forgiveness. I need to say sorry. But if I get angry at you and I take that hot cup of coffee and I throw it at you, a sorry no longer counts. It's now I've sinned. Jesus had to die for that. And I've got to humble myself and confess that and ask for your forgiveness. You know, my, I'm sorry is my easy attempt to get for me what I don't have right now, peace and harmony, because often I get uncomfortable with the consequences of my actions because you're treating me cold and distant, and I hate disharmony because whenever you do that, you make me feel like I've done something wrong. So here's your band-aid. I'm sorry. Can we be happy? And it doesn't work. Friends, if peace is only forfeited by sin, then peace can only be restored by forgiveness. Doesn't that just make sense? Asking for forgiveness acknowledges that I have done something wrong first to God because before I can sin against somebody, I've had to break his command. So I've done something wrong against God and then wrong against my spouse. And it's broken the peace that could have been ours. You know, Adam and Eve really aren't that different from us. We've all broken God's commands. We've all tried to hide. We've all tried to conceal. We've all tried to minimize and shift blame but God is doing everything possible in our hearts in our clothing even to get us to stop concealing and start confessing and when we break peace in a relationship it's time now to restore it and the only way you restore peace is by confessing and asking for forgiveness Friends, this is the way sin corrupts marriages. Because it strips the image of God in us from accurately reflecting Him. And we're going to see in the third part of this series, God through Christ is restoring that image more and more. So that when people see our marriages, they see a picture of how God loves. and They're drawn to want that. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your love for us, God, that you pursue us. Even when we hide, even when we try to conceal, Lord, you are teaching us to confess and you are bridging the gap between where we are now and where we ought to be, what we are and what we should be. And Lord, you are bridging that through Christ so that there is no longer any condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus Lord, as we walk with you faithfully, you are setting us free from shame, which is debilitating. Lord, you are erasing guilt. And you're teaching us to come out from behind trees or anything else that we're using to hide. 
and teaching us that we no longer need to fear you. We need to be in awe of respect. Lord, I pray that this would affect and impact our marriages. Lord, that we would learn to love each other so powerfully that we really would image you, that people would be drawn to Jesus Christ through our very marriages. Lord, remind us this week as we wear clothes, as we put clothes on, as we buy clothes, Lord, that uh, they are not meant to conceal our problem, they're meant to confess it. And they're meant to show us that you have given us new robes of righteousness through the blood of Christ. We are free, and free indeed. In Jesus' name, amen.